Apparently, Albert Finney required many hours of makeup procedures before shooting each day, and because he was performing in a stage play, which is something that I wanted to mention is like five of these actors were also acting at night in theater and stage Mm. plays while during the day shooting this. He didn't have much time for his badly needed sleep. A daily routine was developed where an ambulance arrived to pick up the sleeping actor at his house in his pajamas, carefully trying not to wake him up. During during the half-hour commute to the studio, the makeup artist would begin the rough work on his face. The rest of the fine detail work was completed at the studio on a still-sleeping Finny. <laughs> I feel like that's got to be apocryphal, but I love it. I, I, I love couldn't that. believe that, that. I was like, this literally, I'm imagining Poirot having this done. You know what I mean? That's not even Finny at that point. Like, how how could you possibly... Just just pick me up from my house while I'm asleep and start start putting makeup on me. I'll just sleep through it. That's so That's, that's so, so dramatic. Bizarre. So dramatic. I hope that's true. Welcome, friends, to episode 185 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Sidney Lumet's 1974 film, Murder on the Orient Express. So some of you may be asking yourselves why we decided to cover the 1974 version of this film instead of the more modern 2017 version. And honestly, um... We kind of knew that it was more critically acclaimed. We knew that there were more awards associated with it. But Mm -hmm. um, even just as we went to record this episode, Luke was like, I wonder if people will wonder why we didn't cover the newer one. Yeah, I think they will. Uh, You know, and this came recommended. I think we had a few patrons specifically call out this version. But I know there's also like a BBC uh, series of Poirot that is really highly regarded and i think there's an episode or i don't i don't know if they're like it's like a mini series or what it is we need to look into it more that that's really highly regarded in addition to that 2017 version so there's and, and there's probably more because this is just a highly adapted story yeah i knew that Sidney lumet was the director so i was like well that's a you know plus in that corner right there like that's a check off in the positive corner and then uh see i looked into the cast a little bit and i realized like this is a this is a kind of an opportunity to talk about film history so in that right. way you know there's some more maybe contemporary actors that you're familiar with in in the newer one daisy ridley and johnny depp and kenneth branagh and josh gad and all that but mm-hmm. um we are going to cover that in some way through through yeah. the podcast anyway. I think a bonus probably coming up soon because yeah. I'm excited to see it now after watching this one. I think uh, we both were mispronouncing Lumet before and calling yeah. him Lumet. I've, um, I've heard people call him Sidney Lumet, but... I feel I'm, like I've heard that too. When you yeah. said it, I, I didn't doubt it. I was like, because I think I'd heard that too. But I, I just wanted to say, like, if that's any indication, I'm going to be representing the uh, film novice on this podcast because like I don't know Lumet and I don't know their influence on film and a lot of these actors in this movie um, a few of them have familiar faces for sure um, and I know Albert Finney although he was almost unrecognizable in this role for sure um, uh, I had to look him up and then like I looked up some of the others to see like where why I recognize some of them at least a little bit and then of course Sean Connery just jumps out as someone mm-hmm. you know everybody recognizes I, I would assume Albert Finney obviously is one as well and then Anthony Perkins you recognize Anthony Perkins probably right which one was he he was like the assistant to the person who was killed oh, okay the he was a nervous guy yes yeah uh he did he looked familiar his face looked familiar that that's got the case with all of them I assume right. because they're a lot younger maybe than I than I've seen them in well other no this things. is this this takes place after the thing that I thought you might recognize him from but he is Norman Bates in Psycho Oh, I've I think I've only seen the original Psycho once and it was like in school or something weird like that. Yeah. But you can see casting someone like Norman Bates, casting someone like Anthony Perkins. Yeah. In a in a film like this, how that might have viewers come in with some preconceived notions about that character. 
Oh, yeah, I didn't. Even, yeah, that's a good point. And now that you say that, I can imagine scenes from from that film. And like, yes, that is him. Um, that That's funny. And then the same thing with Sean Connery. Uh, I feel like there has to be a ton of expectation because I looked into it and he had been playing Bond for over a decade. Yeah. At the point when he was in this movie. So if you're going to see him in this movie, you're probably expecting him to like, you know, start kicking ass and taking names and doing, you know, James Bond shit, or at least something to that effect. And he doesn't really do that. I mean, he does punch a dude at one point. Um, but other than that, I, I was kind of surprised with the role he plays. Yeah. It almost felt more like a cameo than anything else. It really did. And honestly, that was intentional. Sidney Lumet, he went out of his way. This is one thing I want to say. This might be, it's this is in the pantheon of greatest casts, potentially of all time in, in one film like ensemble really? cast like this for this time period, mm-hmm. having people like Lauren Bacall and Ingrid Bergman and Sean Connery, like we've talked about Anthony Perkins, um, like the list goes on and on. And Albert Finney, obviously in this un- like mm-hmm. completely unrecognizable role. Um, yeah. I had, I had to like, I kept seeing Albert Finney, the name and I'm like, I know that name. I had to look him up, saw that he was in big fish, which is probably what I know him best from. He has also got a very recognizable face. And I, I when I saw him, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. I've seen him in other stuff. Um, and I looked on down his list on IMDb and sure enough, a bunch of different movies I'd seen. Um, but I didn't know that watching this movie. It was only after because he completely transforms. And um, yeah, I didn't recognize him as a, an actor I had ever seen before. Yeah, so you brought up uh, Bond, and actually Albert Finney mm-hmm. was his last credited role was in Skyfall with with Daniel right. Craig's Bond. So I did see Skyfall. I think I think that's the last Bond movie I've seen. I think there was like two other ones after that that I haven't seen. Right? Um, <laughs> there are at least one other after one that. one other, a second one on the way. Yeah, there's one another one yeah. coming out very soon. But um, yeah, th- so this cast is insane. So just to talk about like Lauren Bacall specifically and Ingrid Bergman. They're like real, real, real quick about Lauren Bacall. Just the one thing I know: uh-huh. voice of the Witch of the Waste in Howl's Moving Castle. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited to see. <laughs> we probably mentioned that when we covered Howl's yeah. Moving Castle. I, I was just trying to see like where do I know her from because she, she again, again had a very recognizable face, and I was trying to see what it could have been, and and that was the thing that I that I saw that was delighted me a little bit. It's funny when we circle back around to something like that. I mean, bringing in someone like like uh, Ingrid Bergman or Lauren Bacall because they're like film noir, like his, they are like legendary within within mm. cinema, especially for like the 40s and 50s. And then, you know, seeing them in this film like later on in their careers is, is amazing because it does have carry that baggage. And it, they, they bring the presence of people who were the biggest stars in the world in the biggest decade in Hollywood, like the the golden age of Hollywood, you could even say. And I saw like The Big Sleep, I think was on Lauren Bacall's yeah, the, IMDb. And um, I know that's a big a big movie in noir. And, and uh, I think it's also an adaptation, I want to say, but I could be wrong about oh, that. Oh, I, I don't know if it is. But that yeah, I mean, that movie's massive. To Have and Have Not is also a massive film for her. Their collaborations, I, the reason I keep talking about them together is because they both collaborated with Humphrey Bogart, who was like okay. the face of noir. Like you think of like Maltese Falcon, you think of some of the movies that he was in around this, that time period. They're just like, you, you look at these people's names and you're like, these are the titans of Hollywood. Like you look back to classic Hollywood and seeing them in an ensemble cast with with Sean Connery, with who, you know, James Bond, um, Norman Bates, like, like, these are just such big names at the time to all come together and collaborate in this way. Um, And of course, Ingrid Bergman was in um, Casablanca, which is like, probably one of the most famous, like, uh, romances of that era. So, so I've been in the sense that we wouldn't have the 2017 Murder on the Orient Express in the way that it came together with as many stars as you listed. Uh, without this movie because I can see a lot of modern actors looking back at this ensemble cast and going, I want to be a part of like a, a, another retelling of that. And, and of course you're going to get just this stellar cast together because that's what this right. story is. I don't know who plays who, but I know Daisy Ridley is in, is in the newer adaptation. I don't yeah. know who she plays. I, I, but... I bet she's uh, the, the, well, I don't want to spoil anything. We're going to we're going to give spoilers once we get into plot summary. So just right here at the top when we're talking general thoughts, we'll we'll stay out of it. But I know this is an old movie, so a lot of people probably don't care about spoilers. But I assume there might be a few people who are checking out this episode wondering if it's worth watching and we don't want to spoil anything for them. 
Yeah, so just just saying Daisy Ridley and seeing that she could potentially be playing the same character as someone like an Angry Bergman is like, uh, how could you mm-hmm. not jump at that opportunity to like be associated in that way? Like that that would be such a dream role. And um, one thing that we're going to get into is also jumping into these ensembles is that Sidney Lumet is like a massive figure in um, stage to television and and specifically television into film and like being a director in television and having a certain way of being an actor's director. Um, And so that's why all you you don't get this cast, this 1974 cast together without Cindy Lumet. Uh, Yeah, because because he was already a big name at the time when this was made. Yes. And and like pulling all these people together, he'd worked with Connery before. Um, there's some stuff that I that I'll read l- later on, but basically Sean Connery acted in five of his films and considered him one of his favorite directors, and one who had that vision thing quote that vision thing. Okay. So, you know, some of these people <laughs> like like uh, I'll I'll actually kind of get into Sidney Lumet here in a second, but I wanted to get some of your general thoughts. Like this is a movie from the '70s, and like there mm-hmm. are there are ways that that might not hold up, but I do think that there are some notable things that that. This movie does very well, um, which makes it feel timeless. Like what I want to hear. I want to hear what your experience was. Yeah, I, my experience was mostly positive. You know, I I found a few things, few things, especially at the start of the movie, were a little dated with the way they were doing. Um, there was like some flashing that I think was trying to signify like a flash of a camera bulb, um, and then you would see this newspaper clipping come up with like some sort of headline, and I was having to read that, and I'm like, this feels very dated yeah i loved that though because that like really because i think that that isn't a thing that was being done in the 70s that's a thing that's referencing something that was being done in like the 40s right i always have to remind myself when i watch a movie that's almost 40 50 years old getting there yeah (laughs) um yet it itself is a period piece about a time that was like 40 years before that right um so it's this really interesting jumping through time of like we're i'm jumping back 45 years ago to see what filmmaking was like in the mid seventies. Yet that film is looking at a time 40 years prior to what the world was like. Um, And so you also see like the perspective of the seventies on a time like that. So it's really interesting in that way. And through that lens, I I found it really fascinating. Um, I thought this movie was beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, And and I thought that really held up. I thought it was extremely colorful for the most part, like the wide open shots, um, especially early in the movie really did a lot for making this uh, European backdrop really just shine. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, when, when and there's a couple scenes where there's just like crowds of people and incredibly colorful and interesting costumes um, that, that, I don't know, it's just really interesting. And then there's a really cool way that they uh, show off the upper class uh, like elites that are all getting onto this train um, yeah. and just how like hoity-toity they are <laughs> so my question um, is and, and, did did the um so you're talking about the establishing shots early on like so we get these shot these long drawn out shots of like the ferry where the ferry is leaving the port and we get the shot of the of the train leaving the station and i wanted to know like because like i feel like that helps with the texture of what you're talking about like giving letting you really sink into the world and like watch something like that play out like you would if you were just sitting at the port watching a boat leave does yeah. it, did it bother you that those scenes were extended scenes of just like kind of just yeah. living in that space uh no um but i know that i am am sometimes an outlier on this kind of stuff i like seeing beautiful moments where you can kind of absorb things in movies um i tend to have a bigger appetite for that than i think many film goers have these days um i i, I liked it and then um i think it serves purposes right like especially if there's some sort of purpose there and i think uh specifically the train stuff, um, I, I felt like this was lovingly showing off the train. Like it was it was really trying to establish the power of the train, the the sort of might and um, majesty of locomotion in this way. And I think that any, any fans of trains <laughs> who would watch this movie, um, which maybe is like kind of a quaint thing nowadays, but like I know that's that's been a thing for a long time people who just love trains um and i feel like if you love trains this is a great movie for you to watch because it really lovingly shows it off and then they even use the sounds of the train to almost complement the score and i thought at times the whistle would would come in and like punctuate a moment and sometimes it would sound like a scream or sometimes like a wail 
um, and sometimes it would seem beautiful, and like, it was just interesting the way that the sound came together with with the score, which itself was also like this grandiose, over the top almost bombastic score that really fit with the character of Poirot and this whole situation. Um, and it kind of just announced to me that like I'm going to watch a rich film with over the top, like exciting um, sets and um score yet you're gonna get it's gonna be fun and like uh I, I nothing about this told me it was gonna be dark and seedy it was like no this is gonna be fun you're gonna be able to relax and have a good time with yeah. this movie imagine if uh, that score was like like really dreary and like scary instead of being like that upbeat like serious sort of, crime is described right. as start so it yeah. could have been and so yeah. we're you know we, you spoke about the score and then also um the way that it plays out really is like theater there are long extended scenes that are just played out as you would watch in a theater. And and there's something to be said about performance with that as well, because like and again, it's not the it's not the flashiest. Some, some stuff that I was seeing in my research of Lumet is that like the one of the things that makes him great is that he really went for like a fly on the wall sort of a pro he doesn't want you to be aware like in the way that sometimes we talk about like this filmmaker wants you to be like you're watching a film right now look at right. how flashy these edit mm -hmm. points are look at all this Edgar is very Wright, subtle yeah. mm -hmm. very like um naturalistic where it's like we're looking at shots of something for an extended period of time we're letting scenes play out on their own for moment like i'll get into it but there are scenes that are re really really long and it's just the actor on screen, you know, and like letting it breathe in that way. Um, it's, you know, degree of difficulty is like something that you always have to think about with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Just to talk about my own experience a little bit. I, I loved it. I am so happy that I've seen this film because it was one that I just never really had engaged with in any way. I knew that it had mm -hmm. a, a great cast, but, um, and getting into dive into Sydney Lumet more like makes me appreciate a different style of filmmaking than I typically like gravitate towards it's not like right. i enjoyed this film immensely but it wasn't the sort of it's not the sort of film that i could see myself making and that's not mm -hmm. to say that i don't appreciate it greatly like maybe even more so than some other stuff that does appeal to my sensibilities um but seeing like sort of like this master in in this height of power with this cast and the set design and the train you spoke about the train the train really being a character in the way mm -hmm. that it's like when it's stuck and like it's trying to like the trains are digging through the snow and um, the shots that we get from the exteriors and all that's all that really, you know, make it feel lived in. Because if it was just the interior of a, of a train the entire time, we really wouldn't get that sense of feeling is trapped, you know, or yeah. or, you know, like you said, it, it really like the train plays up the drama in some ways. It plays up this like fun adventure feel in other ways and then yeah the loud clanging and other t at other times is just like jarring and and it can seem kind of scary mm -hmm. just it works really well um if anything like the movie kind of begins wide open and then as it progresses it kind of shoves you closer to closer together and and it gets a little more claustrophobic and then the train gets stuck and then most of the movie at that point is taking place inside the train cars themselves um, so it, it starts to feel more closed in and not like in a way that makes you want to panic, but it does um, heighten the drama as we're sort of barreling towards the, the finale yeah. of the movie. The uh, I want to talk about introductions of specifically Poirot for sure. But um, the the way that when Poirot first gets on the train and he's like walking through all the major players, there's like these these shots that are just tracking shots following Poirot in and he's walking by this actor and that actor. And it's like these big reveal moments because all of these actors are beloved actors. Mm. And so there's these moments for them to look at Poirot and be like, you're not supposed to be here. You know, we know going in like he's not supposed to be on the train and what that means to potentially what's going to go on later. Um, yeah. and these, mo these like, mo it feel, it felt like a coming to get, it felt like an Avengers size movie for the seventies, <laughs> like getting okay. all of these actors together. Like people yeah. were so excited to finally see some of the actors and the Avengers movies finally come across and, and all be in this ensemble movie together. This feels like that massive for the seventies where it's like, you know, you may have looked at the movie poster. Maybe you go in and see this movie in the seventies without having seen anything. And then you see like Sean Connery and Lauren Bacall and you know all of these people that you've you've come to love on screen it's just it, it makes for this incredible uh, ensemble piece but 
Yeah. And Lauren Bacall was great, too, as Mrs. Hubbard. Like, so oh, yeah. so funny and just like, I mean, uh, Mrs. Hubbard is funny in the book, too, and definitely provides a sort of uh, comic relief. But I, she just nails this role. I was, I was really taken with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably, honestly, up there, maybe my favorite performance. Poirot is great. And um, mm. Ingrid Bergman as um, Greta Olsen as well. Uh, is another notable performance, and and I'll get into it. But most of her performance takes place in the interview process, um, mm. and like a lot of characters are like that. Like they don't have a ton of uh, scenes outside of their specific ones, and then the end. It sounds like we would both recommend this movie. Um, is there any is there any caveats or any sort of like? Because I I would say like it's not something that if you're a modern movie fan and you're not used to watching older movies is going to just necessarily go down perfectly. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, I don't there, think you're just is... recommending this to the random person. I think that yeah. if you, you, you definitely have to have the appreciation for some of the people in this film. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Like, I only recognize a few of them. And I think if I had been like more steeped in it and like really known just how iconic a lot of this cast was, and I had seen a lot of the other stuff they had been in, I I would have liked it even more than I did, um, but instead I, I I appreciated it. I had a good time with it, um, but I wouldn't say this is like oh this is gonna be one of my favorite movies now or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean I can I can definitely see that. I think it has it, it has more historic value as yeah. like a piece of cinema than necessarily being like one of the greatest films ever made. But you know your your mileage may vary because maybe you are a you know a student of classic film and that's your favorite type of film mm -hmm. is, is older films and this really speaks to you because it's like I said that moment of all these great actors coming together and Sidney Lumet at the height of his powers creating this great Agatha Christie novel like like mystery all the way through um, a lot of great subtlety to it a lot of great performances um, mm -hmm. so if that's if, and and again I think if you're if you're a fan of theater you'll appreciate this movie more yeah than if you're not it felt very theatrical yeah I'll give you that too a lot of the performances were played as theaters. I mean, like the over the top mm -hmm. playing bigger than you might uh, see in a, like a more subtle yeah. modern film. Um, speaking of which, let's talk about Poirot while we're while we're on the subject. Um, it took some getting used to for me when Poirot first showed up on on screen. I was like, "Ooh, this is not what I was expecting," and it was kind of like jarring and he's a little bit hard to understand sometimes and he's like got he's very quirky in the way that i thought maybe yeah. in the book he was like less quirky than this but yeah by the end i loved that choice mm -hmm. uh, um but it did take some right away i was like kind of put yeah. off it was a dramatic performance in the sense that it was like uh, yeah there's a lot of quirkiness it was transformative the appearance was really different than albert finney usually looks he's in his 30s and um, when this is made he's in his 30s and he's playing someone in his 50s or 60s wow he looks yeah. a lot older than that okay yeah how oh, that makes sense yeah and he's he's got this accent and he's doing the thing with his back he's like sort of shuffling around whenever he's walking yeah it seemed like he maybe was wearing something to give him a bit more of a stomach than he probably had uh, there's cer certain things when that with that costume, I think were um, I don't know, just it, it really transformative again. Like he became this character that um, I had not seen before, and and it's funny because like I, this could be the character in the book. It's an interpretation of it, right? Like uh, and it's and it's like certain of the quirkier bits sort of played up to an even more heightened level, in my opinion, and, yeah. and I think it works. All right, well, while we're here, we have to talk about this. 84-year-old Agatha Christie attended the movie premiere in November of 1974. It was the only movie adaptation in her lifetime with which she was completely satisfied. In particular, really? she felt that Albert Finney's performance came closest to her idea of Poirot, though she was reportedly unimpressed with his too subtle mustache. <laughs> the, premiere, the premiere was her final public appearance. She died 14 months later on January 12, 1976. Wow. Well, that's cool that she was able to appreciate this movie, and, yeah. and I'm glad she liked it. In in our previous episode, you mentioned that she wasn't a fan of cinema, so I was really yeah, happy. Not a fan to hear of movies that, in general. So, that she yeah. enjoyed this one at least, and like the the mustache thing is hilarious to me. It's yeah. like it's supposed to be a much bigger mustache in the book, so why would <laughs> yeah. you do that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about Agatha Christie, listen to our last episode because we talked a lot about her biography, and it was pretty cool. Definitely. Um, and with that, I think we should move into Sidney Lumet. Sidney Lumet was an American film director, producer, and screenwriter with over 50 films to his credit. He was nominated five times for the Academy Award, four for Best Director for 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and The Verdict, and one for Best Adapted Screenplay for Prince of the City. 
He did not win an individual Academy Award, but did receive an Academy Honorary Award, and 14 of his films were nominated for Oscars. According to the Encyclopedia of Hollywood, Lumet was one of the most prolific filmmakers of the modern era, directing more than one movie a year on average since his directorial debut in 1957. Turner Classic Movies notes his strong direction of actors, vigorous storytelling, and the social realism in his best work. Film critic Roger Ebert described him as one of the finest craftsmen and warmest humanitarians among all film directors. Lumet was also known as an actor's director, having worked with the best of them during his career, probably more than any other director. Sean Connery, who acted in five of his films, considered him one of his favorite directors and and one who had that vision thing, as I said before, which I think is a hilarious quote from Connery. <laughs> Lumet began his directorial career in off-Broadway productions, then became a highly efficient TV director. His first movie, 12 Angry Men, in 1957, was a courtroom drama centered on a tense jury deliberation. And I, I you think you've seen that, right? I haven't seen it, but okay. I, I know it's a very famous movie. Right, and... and it's amazing. Like it, you can watch that's a movie that you can watch today and it's not going to feel in most ways it's not going to feel dated at all. And mm. it's it stands the test of time. It's it's incredible. Uh, you know, I feel like most people the AFI probably has it really high on the list of greatest films of all time. So Yeah, I would bet. If you haven't seen that, I would definitely check that out. Lumet subsequently d- divided his energies among political and social drama films as well as adaptations of literary plays and novels big stylish stories, New York-based black comedies, and realistic crime dramas, including Serpico and Prince of the City. Have you seen Serpico with Al Pacino? No. No? no I thought I that would have been one you've seen. I haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon either. Well, no, that's another famous it's one. That's another big one, yeah. As a result of directing 12 Angry Men, he was also responsible for leading the first wave of directors who made a successful transition from TV to movies. So like I said, he was a he was basically the bastion of seeing television directors break into movies because there was like mm-hmm. the line in the sand that was drawn long ago. Is that still a thing? Because I feel like that's kind of a thing still, right? We've we've seen it go away even more than at this time, but yeah. it's still kind of a thing. You know, yeah. television is a different beast because if you jump on a television show as a director with these long network television shows that are like 26 episode seasons, you're probably not directing the whole thing all the way through. And so you're kind of like at the whim of the writers and everything else that's going on in the story. And you kind of just drop in to direct something and kind of give your vision to it as much as you can. And then you're off of it and someone else takes the reins. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I think that that gets the reputation of not having like this sort of singular straightforward vision that you can get with film sometimes. But I think it's almost completely gone at this point. I just just finished Mayor of Easttown, which... I've been hearing good things about that. Was incredible. Should I check it out? Definitely check it out. Um, It seems like something I would like. You're going to love it. I promise that um, okay, there's cool. there's things about it that reminded me while we were watching while we were, you know, studying this film and the story here, just like it's a mystery. It's a detective mm-hmm. story. Um, it reminds me of things like True Detective, not not as ex- existential as True Detective necessarily, but there's definitely some deep stuff in there. But uh, just having a murderer and trying to figure out who it is, mm-hmm. is like kind of a part of that show. And so you know, I couldn't help but draw the parallels trying to think of like modern day writers, how they're subverting expectations in sort of a grittier, darker, more grounded mystery and like how that's, you know, it can draw parallels all the way back to Agatha Christie in the early 1900s. In 2005, Lumet received an Academy Award for Lifetime Achievement for his brilliant services to screenwriters, performers and the art of the motion picture. Two years later, he concluded his career with the acclaimed drama Before the Devil Knows You're Dead in 2007. A few months after Lumet's death in 2011, a retrospective celebration of his work was held at New York's Lincoln Center with numerous speakers and film stars. I've heard of that one too, but I'm realizing I haven't seen a lot of his work. He's just, there's so many. Like I said, there's 50 films, over 50 mm-hmm. films that he directed. Some of the best of them I feel like I've seen, and then some of them I still haven't. So I, you know, it's somebody that I, I expect in the future I'll watch more and more of. Um, I have some interesting stuff here about his coming up, though. After working off-Broadway in Summerstock, he began directing television in 1950 after working as an assistant to friend and then-director Yule Brenner. Um, some of these you might not... like. like some That's of a these familiar are, name, but I can't Yeah, some it. of these names are going to be familiar to you. Um, Yule Brenner is massive within the theater community. Like, it's a name that I've heard people... I'm not as big of a theater person as I mm. you know, would even like to be, but Yule Brenner is someone massive. So to assist a friend 
Yul Brenner is kind of huge in the 1950s. Um, he soon developed a lightning quick method for shooting due to high turnover required by television. As a result, while working for CBS, he directed hundreds of episodes of Danger from 1950 to 1955, Mama from 1949 to 1957, and You Are There from 1953 to 1957. You Are There is a weekly series which co-starred Walter Cronkite in one of his early leading roles. Um, oh, okay. So you obviously know who Walter Cronkite yeah, is. Yeah, uh, I do Lumet, know who that is. <laughs> yeah, Lumet chose Cronkite for the role of Anchorman because the premise of the show was so silly, was so outrageous that we needed somebody with the most American homespun warm ease about him, Lumet said. Okay. Walter Cronkite, another like just like coming in, coming into contact with some like huge people, like the voice of, of the news, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Dan, Dan Rather is probably mine. Yeah. Well, like that's our generation. That yeah, that's yeah. our generation. Was, like Cronkite was maybe a little before. Cronkite was like Vietnam. And, you know, when all that stuff was shown on TV to families in their homes and stuff, like he was the person yeah, who was also yeah, there. Right. And I think, you know, the JFK assassination, I think he was there for like, I think he was the, he was the news for a long time. So mm. crazy. Oh, so one other thing, you mentioned 12 Angry Men earlier. It's based on a CBS live play. And it was an auspicious beginning for Lumet. It was a critical success and established him as a director skilled at adapting properties from other mediums to motion pictures. Fully half of Lumet's complement of films originated in the theater. Okay, so he's he's a big adapter of, of plays and stuff. To, Which kind of yeah, cool. lends to his style that we see in Murder on the Orient yeah, Express. Being very theatrical. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I want to talk about his directing techniques that I saw some of, too. Lumet uh, had always preferred naturalism or realism, according to Joanna Rapp. He did not like the de decorator's look, where the camera could call attention to itself. He edited his films so the camera was unobtrusive. His cinematographer, Ron Fortunato, said, Sidney flips if he sees a look that's too artsy. He was a strong believer in rehearsal and felt if you rehearse correctly, the actor will not lose spontaneity. According to acting author Ian Bernard, he felt that it gives actors the entire arc of the role, which gives them the freedom to find that magical accident. Wait, so explain that to me. He's he's doing a lot of rehearsal or not a lot of rehearsal? Tons okay. of rehearsal in a similar way to what you would do with theater. Tons now, rehearsal, rehearsal different, different than t multiple takes. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Now, there were multiple takes as well, but the okay. rehearsal in the fact that like he could let the actors choose to inhabit that character and then could trust them to make decisions based on that. Once you've rehearsed and you understand mm. them within the story, then they can do subtleties with their mannerisms. They can, you know, do some some other things that'll add flavor to the character because, you know, each person's like a building block. The director can't necessarily say, and then you'll move your arm this way and then you'll do this and do that. And there are directors who will do that sometimes. But if a... So if a person takes on their own sort of idea of what the character becomes then just add so many layers to the scenes mm -hmm. just as a novice asking uh rehearsal for films mm -hmm. is that done on set or is that done beforehand or both or or when you're on set are you are you more doing doing takes yeah so yeah, when, when there's a lot happen? there's a lot that can go into the pre-production like that so most of the time you're probably going to do a lot of rehearsing there are definitely rehearsals that are done with just the director and the actors kind of going through things. That's absolutely mm -hmm. probably what he was doing. But then also on the day, something that's helpful is blocking out the scene, rehearsing it, and then having the camera actually move around the scene, not necessarily filming, but knowing exactly where it's going to be, what you want to get. Okay. Um, and that way it can feel more natural on the day and planned out and everything knows. It's interesting to contrast that to like what we talked about in like The Shining, where it was like, oh, they did 90 takes on this or whatever. And it's like maybe they could have should should have just done more rehearsal. I don't know, <laughs> or is that different? Is is takes different than, yeah. than rehearsal? I, you I know? think what it comes down to is that Kubrick wanted all of that on film so that he could piece together the perfect edit, whereas Sidney mm. Lumet wanted the actors to have the rehearsals time so that they could do their own performances. And whereas right. like Kubrick was like, let me like antagonize you, let me be nice to you, let me do all of these things, and then see what kinds of different takes I can get out of you, and then in the edit put it together how I see fit. Interesting. Yeah, it's a very, sense. very different approach. So one thing I want to say in reacting to that, um, I did find a, a, an interesting moment. I, I want to know if, if you if you think I'm onto something here or if I am I'm just imagining it. But there was a moment at the I think they were at a hotel. I think it's where uh, Poirot is first meeting with his friend. Um, and there's these windows behind him that are this 
incredibly primary blue, like incredibly powerful primary blue uh, light coming through them that I thought looked unnatural. It didn't look like a real light to me, like a, like a, you know, from the sun, it just looked like notable. Right. And then I held on to that blue. I even wrote down like, wow, that blue was really incredible. Um, I thought it was really artistic. Right. And it's funny because you said you didn't like that artsy look. And then later on in the movie, there's a scene, which I won't spoil, but there's a scene with a lot of blue in it. And I thought, oh, it it was foreshadowing this moment. And I thought this was this artsy moment. And then I hear you saying he doesn't like that. Like, was this just a touch? Or like, he did a little bit of that? Or or am I imagining it? (laughs) So this is the thing, that blue scene that you're talking about that that has spoilers in it. Yeah. Clearly, that was done with artistry, the the intent to do that. So like, I I don't think that it, I think it's just calling more and more attention to it, like sort of with your editing. And how much of it do you do? Do you just do a little bit here or there, you know, a little little sprinkle? Are you doing it throughout the whole movie a ton? Well, like camera moves like that are camera moves that that achieve something that you couldn't with your own two eyes walking around being a fly on the wall, like some crazy crane shots or something Mm. like that, that, you know, something that's like larger than life that's drawing attention to the fact that you're not your human eyes it's it's the camera i think what they're talking about like flashier uh camera moves and edits Mm. and things like that um you could very well be i don't remember specifically the blue with with poirot in the beginning but it makes me you know you make a good argument i could see that being the case interesting so film critic owen gleiberman has observed that lumet was a hard-boiled straight shooter who because he was trained during the golden age of television in the 1950s became noted for his energetic style of directing the words sydney lumet and energy he adds became synonymous the energy was there in the quietest moments it was in an it was an inner energy a hum of existence that lumet observed in people and brought out in them um, mm. when he went into the New York streets, he made them electric. Now, this is an interesting um, juxtaposition here. It was a working class outer borough energy. Lumet's streets were just as mean as Scorsese's, but Lumet's seemed plain rather than poetic. He channeled that New York sleazy vitality with such a natural force that it was easy to overlook what was truly involved in that achievement. He captured the New York vibe like no one else because he saw it, lived it, breathed it, and then had to go out and stage it and recreate it, almost as if he was staging a documentary, letting his actors square off like random predators, insisting on the most natural light possible, making offices look as ugly and bureaucratic as they were because he knew beneath that they weren't just offices but layers, and that there was a deeper intensity, almost a kind of beauty to catching the coarseness of reality as it truly looked. Interesting. That's not this movie at all. No, not but really. it's cool to know that he's that. that's like, part of his oeuvre right like he's capable of that the way in the way that he captures a scene with with natural lighting and staging it like more of a documentary yeah. is what i'm talking about without like fancy camera moves we're we're, mm-hmm. we're doing some what's when what's crazy to me is i know a lot of this was shot on a set but think about the close quarters of a train car like that and like yeah. how where you'll be able to fit the camera and what you can get and there were times where it felt like we're turning corners out of cabinets in the train as you would if you were there like the camera yeah. was and so it kind of gave that almost more documentary, cinematic documentary style to it, but not quite like shaky cam, like reality kind of thing. Yeah, it did. It made you feel like you were on the train with them in a way that I kept thinking, and I'll be looking out for this when we watch the modern version. It's like a modern filmmaker could take a camera and put it in like a, a corner or put it somewhere like low or high and like make the space seem so much bigger than it is and make it feel wide open, even though it isn't and like. He wasn't doing that. He was leaning into like, nope, you're on a train car. You're on a train car. This is what it would look like yeah. on a train car. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, from here, I think we should probably jump into some plot. And yeah. it's a very short plot synopsis, but I'd like to talk more spoilers. Yeah. And we'll be full spoilers yeah. once we, we get into there. So full bore. <laughs> this is your this is your warning. Yeah. Uh, so the plot. Having concluded a case, Detective Hercule Poirot settles into what he expects will be a relaxing journey home aboard the Orient Express. But when an unpopular billionaire is murdered en route, Poirot takes up the case, and everyone on board the famous train is a suspect. Using an avalanche blocking the tracks to his advantage, Poirot gradually realizes that many of the passengers have revenge as a motive, and he begins to home in on the culprit. Cool, yeah. So this movie opens with the Armstrong family and yes. the, the crime, mm-hmm. and that is a big departure from the book. Um, the book does not do that. The book only introduces the Armstrong stuff when it kind of starts to become relevant later, right? Like mm-hmm. once we start to catch on to Ratchet being involved in it, then all of a sudden it's like, let me tell you about this Armstrong thing. Um, 
that was an interesting change, and I think it works in this movie in the sense that it it provide a it provided a uh, framing for it in a way, and it was like it it was so primary in starting the movie that way that you know it's going to come back and be important. Um, and so, in some ways, I could see people might think it's kind of a spoiler to give it so much screen time early. But um, in another way, it just it just provided this backdrop that you so you always knew it was at the edges and you always knew it was going to somehow come back to it. And you were just curious to see how. Right. The movie's called Murder on the Orient Express. When you go to sit yeah. down in the th- whether you buy the book or you go to sit down in the theater, you know, that there's going to be a more murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. So I guess to make to call attention to like what could potentially be a motive as the first thing could be a little, you know, you could immediately be like, OK, well, who would have motive based on this early scene? Because it is so has nothing to do with anything else that's going on in the story, or so yeah. you think until the end. Um, so yeah, a part of me feels like that was like an older thing, older school thing to do because it does kind of give it away earlier I'll on. Be, that, yeah, I'll that be curious to see if that's in the new one too. You yeah, know, like, or did they go a different route? Because you know that that has something to do with the murder. You keep that in the back of the. Ear. You might forget about yeah. it through the course of the film, but if you if you do remember that scene, you're like, well, that's that's the major hint to like put all this together and figure out who mm-hmm. did it. Um, yeah, but even so, I think it's pretty tough to figure out that it ultimately it was everyone. I did think it was interesting that the murder didn't take place for a while like the actual murder on the orient express it, it felt like we were i don't know i didn't time it i guess but it felt like we were a good 30 45 minutes into the movie before it took place yeah so that's another change right the ferry wasn't it was another train in the book right it was a, a, yeah. a train was, to another train there I was thought. definitely several chapters before mm-hmm. the murder takes place in the book but it did seem maybe even longer in the film before we got there like like uh fractionally the introduction like i talked about when we first get on the train and we're seeing all the all of these people i'm still getting accustomed to poirot's like the performance that that uh finley's yeah. giving and um early on they they really play up even more i think than in the book how everyone is a suspect like right yeah. away the like they're everyone's looking lingering looking at him giving him looks and yeah, acting um, dodgy <laughs> acting dodgy he goes into the his room that he eventually is given hat is the same room as as um mcqueen and mcqueen's like no 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 this can't happen and it's all panicking mm-hmm. and then and then the guy who is the who's the employee of the of the train apparently is like no 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 it's all as planned and there's yeah. just like sketchiness happening all over the place so as an audience member i think you're even more so immediately clued into the fact that everyone's a suspect yeah well like you said it's it's this movie announces that it's about mm-hmm. a murder and there's a detective and so you right. know what's coming so of course you're yeah you're of course you're we're watching for it um i wanted to back up just a hair to when everybody was getting on getting on the train and we get multiple people it's like our, our first like uh, introduction to the cast too before poirot rocks and, and actually meets all of them is each of their them entering the train Right. And they pass through this like crowded, bizarre, like uh, terminal area where there's tons of people trying to sell them things when um, the couple and I can't remember the names of the characters, but it's the woman who is later revealed to be the sister um, of the Armstrongs, um, her and her husband, when they're walking together, they're like dressed all to the nines and and, uh, somebody knocks over a pile, like a bunch of oranges, I think it was, and they all roll in front of them. Yeah. And I immediately thought of the Godfather. Godfather, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what does this mean? Is it just, just mean that like death is coming? And I thought it meant they were going to die. But then I'm like, no, maybe it just is a signifier of death. Or maybe it's just I'm too like caught up in my Godfather knowledge. And I'm like, maybe it doesn't mean anything. It was just some oranges. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, Godfather did come out like just a few years before this. So. I remember when we, we covered it, you told me like, oh, oranges, it means something when it happens and yeah fonda talked about that too yeah like oranges represent death within like you keep seeing like citrus right before someone's killed kind of thing Mm. so i wonder if that's just maybe maybe that's just a sign that like this is an ill-fated trip and that there's going to be death on it period just as like a sydney lumet nod to francis ford coppola kind of thing maybe i don't know could be yeah i like to think that yeah maybe i'm crazy I just it was notable. Definitely. I think we should talk about how odd that scene was overall. Of course, it's like the introduction and we're getting to see some of the characters like attitudes as they're walking through this area and seeing Mm -hmm. these people who are clearly trying to sell them stuff. Some of them are like waving them away. Some of them are just straight up ignoring them. Uh, Yeah. It shows you that they're all very wealthy, I think. And and yeah, like they're they're considered targets for this sort of thing. (laughs) 
Yeah, and we talked about slightly about how Greta, the character Greta, like is like dropping things and she's freaking mm-hmm. out about her her like Saint Peter Cross or something like that, Saint somebody. Um, and how it's like I think it's like for travel, like safe travel yeah. kind of thing. And uh the, some of them are like deciding to get on at different parts of the train. Did you make anything of that? Um no, because like I there's the, there's a spot where he's like asking people for their tickets and they're coming on. Uh, and then, the, and then, like sometimes they'll walk further down. Sometimes they'll walk right past him. And they're I didn't being assign know the, numbers to their cabins, right? Like yeah. you're in the number eleven. You're in the number exactly. Four. So I didn't know if like they were supposed they they could have gotten on there and walked down the train, or they're just getting on at their cars. But I don't know. I thought that might have been some sort of like hint or clue of something going on. Um, yeah, I don't know. I want to. I do think I want to rewatch at some point to see if like there was like in the similar kind of way to what Agatha Christie was doing threading in some like hints of what's going on like could you have figured out this murder earlier on because i still think even if you know there's gonna be a murder it's still really tough to pick up that it's everybody yeah i mean i you can't this kind of thing you can only really do like i can't imagine someone doing this again right like it's just kind of a very unique situation where you can pull off this everybody was in on it uh reveal i'm sure it has been done again now that i say that it's like i'm sure it's been done again but it was probably an homage to this if it was because this is a yeah, it's 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 bold because you can do that and you can make everybody look guilty because they are all guilty. And that actually, I wanted to t- mention that there's these two characters who, after every interview, once Paro starts interviewing people, <laughs> go, "Oh, it was definitely them, definitely him, definitely Love guilty." That. And it became yeah. this like joke, right? Like they were after every thing. But then it's funny because then at the end, it's like they're actually right about everybody, <laughs> yeah. not because they knew, but just because they were all guilty. <laughs> Right. And and that comedy is something that I definitely want to talk about, because even with Poirot, like if you want oh, yeah. to come into this and it's a detective story, like a like a hard boiled detective story, it's not yeah, that not at all. That, Poirot's all. character is it's all comedy. It's all comedy mm. baked around this like, you know, murder that happens. And Although, it's supposed to be this fun adventure. But it's all like there's these moments, these reaction shots of people's faces like it's all there for laughs. And and it's yeah. funny because it's not quite as on the nose as something you might see today. I, I bet you the more modern retelling of this story, the 2017 film, I bet you it's like more on the nose funny, like more jokes, that kind of laugh thing. out loud funny. Yeah. Right. Some of my favorite parts of Finney's uh, performance is when he starts getting upset and he starts getting sort of like worked up yes. and yelling. There's this one moment when he's this is later on when he's doing the reveal, but he's He's yelling, um, what is it? He says, uh, evasion. And then he like, lists another thing, evasion. And he lists another thing, inaccuracy. And he's just like <laughs> shouting at people. And like, I was like, I got to start doing that, man. <laughs> <Right>. Evasion. <laughs> what do you think of this part, James? Evasion. <laughs> I'm like, 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 if you're turning a waffle into something, like, evasion. <laughs> inaccuracy. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 I like, like that his, his, and that was like my whole thing with his performance like in his in, you know the way the character's played is that he is affronted and annoyed and like sort of worked up at the deception at the attempt to confuse him but he's not like morally out outraged right and so it's it, it's an interesting line to walk because it did feel like he was he was frustrated that they had attempted to put one over on him he's like how dare you like i am poirot i am gonna figure this out insulting his intelligence is exactly like like, like, i have figured you out i'm gonna yell at you about the fact that like i know what happened um like as a point of professional pride right like you know you can't put one over on me Um, and then once he's like sufficiently drummed into them like no you did not fool me okay, now I can let you know that actually this guy was terrible. And, um, you know, I, I don't really, I'm not really mad that you did this. I'm just mad that you tried to confuse me. Right. I mean, and that goes into the end of the film as well, where he's like, yeah. he's basically saying like, you could choose your option here. And like, you know, yeah. but I do recommend the first one would be easier for the police to comprehend kind of thing. And yeah. Uh, so, but speaking of the performances, um, I loved like when Poirot would he would be in a room talking to somebody in a certain he was he had a performance to him within the story as well. He would be speaking to someone more gently and things like that and be like, everything will be OK. And then he would leave and close the cabinet, like close the the cabin kind of thing, door behind him. And then he mm-hmm. would immediately just like pop up and sprint down the hall and be talking very yeah. quickly to everybody. And like uh, just that like the fl- the switch that he flips that keeps happening yeah. in the way that um, like I can remember when. 
uh, anytime anybody's trying to touch evidence, he's just like so quick to like stop them from touching it. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. he's always grabbing the thing. When and... he goes to interview the, the like maid, mm-hmm. he, he like, he literally like goes running down the hallway to like catch her while she's still, <laughs> exactly. you know, away. That was yeah. funny. I, I did want to mention that this movie won uh, best actress in a supporting role for Ingrid Bergman, who okay. was, as we've talked about Greta, um, best actor in a leading role, Albert Finney won. Yeah. Uh, best writing screenplay adapted from other material paul den so it won for best writing and then it was a nominee for best cinematography best costume design and best music original dramatic score yeah i can see all that not best director though huh no not best director not first i don't think he ever won actually sydney lumet never won the actual individual best director award Hmm. he got an honorary one though eventually so it's interesting because greta was that that was the character right greta you're saying in this performance and it was a good performance but like i just with that character the thing that sticks out most for me was this like pretty awful racist moment that uh just really aged like milk from the 70s um it was bad she talks she about talking about the children the, the back you know how she was backward and she went to teach backward babies yeah. who are more backward than her like backward brown babies or something in I like africa specific, in yeah. africa and yeah it was real cringy, and then it ends up not even being true. It's a lie. Um, so it was all bad, and it gets brought up again later in the movie just to remind me of it. I'm like, oh, God, I have to hear her talk about this again. Um, it was tu- That was tough. Um, and, yeah, it, it kind of ruined me my ability to enjoy her performance, I guess, because I was too focused on that. Yeah, I can see that. Honestly, I was surprised mm-hmm. that she won for this role as well. Yeah. And I do like a lot to her character. I think there is a lot there. But I think in this prestigious, like, film this this agatha christie novel adapted into the sydney lumet directed film i'm surprised of all things that it was her performance because i did think yeah. it was great but i didn't think that it was like way better than everyone else yeah particularly noteworthy or, among all yeah, the others yeah. but and and i thought that there she had a great scene that scene that i thought that was a good mm-hmm. scene barring the stuff that you just talked about yeah like i, I think I there's that a lot part of ruined the scene for me too much for great me to performance really say. in there <laughs> yeah there's great yeah. performance in there but i just she didn't definitely i was, was very like you know she was very frightened and seemed like she was hiding something and so there was a lot of layers there I, I, i'll give you that yeah which I, you know shout out to a lot of people in this like miss hubbard who is is lauren bacall like hilarious that, hilarious yeah. and also a difficult thing to pull off to be yeah. like because once well, we see that once we see that veil removed when she's that mm-hmm. comedy is removed and we see like when they're committing the murder and her for the rest of the story she is we got to talk about that scene in general both of those so things. That, yeah. that blue scene that, that's the one i was referencing earlier it's this mm-hmm. and, and we don't really get this in the book so this is kind of an invention for the movie it's it's an imagining of something that occurred and we see this uh, the scene where they switch the light and they switch this blue light that, again, I think was was foreshadowed earlier in the movie. And they each come in one at a time and they say each person says something and then stabs. And we hear this like different sound of a stab. And you're left to like imagine what this like I was imagining like how powerful the stab was, like how deep. And I was like trying to link that to the wounds that had been described, like who did the really weak one and who did this one and the powerful one. And then the whole time that's happening, you do have Lauren Bacall. And she's completely different, right? And she's in the background. She's sort of like watching and approving. I think she also stabs first. Uh, so she, and then she's just like watching and sort of approving everything. And it, it almost seems kind of scary in this moment. It's just a very different uh, vibe than we had gotten up to that point. It really from, is. From, it was darker Robert. than I thought they would go in this movie that was so yeah. light the whole way through. And, and it takes like, a long time to get stabbed 12 times too. Like, it really it did. It was an extended yeah. scene. It was like 10 minutes of that at least. And like, yeah, each person is saying like their reasoning and yeah. really, like you said, uh, this, I don't know, the stabbing was pretty, pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean, it's not not bloody or anything. Well, not really. I mean, you see some blood yeah. on the knife, maybe, but that's about yeah. It. The, it brought back the idea that I said in the, in our first episode of, of Murder on the Orient Express is like probably the f- they're like oh this is you know making it so that all of us killed him, but like probably the first or second people <laughs> killed him, and it's like yeah, everyone else is just I mean, stabbing it takes, him. It takes a little while to bleed out, you know, yeah. and if, that tough to say. At some um, point, somebody killed him though. Yeah. I don't think it was the twelfth person. Yeah, no, probably I not. Uh, I did want to say, just like shooting back from this scene, uh, the the extended monologue that that Albert Finney is is performing mm. is like I read eight pages, so basically like eight minutes or so of mm. the film, 
where he's just straight monologuing. And like there are cuts, but there are extended sequences where there are not cuts. Oh, okay. Where he's just monologuing and saying the entire way through his working through his process of who it is and why it's this person, and why it's not that person, and mm-hmm. the whole weaving all the way through. It was a masterclass. I couldn't that believe cool. that it was very cool. And it was it was the way that they I read that they had to shoot it so many times. The final scene in which Poirot relates his solution to the crime had to be shot countless times as it required more angles than could be captured in a single take and more cameras than could fit on the confining dining car set. The multiple takes were especially challenging for Albert Finney, whose uninterrupted monologue was eight pages long. But many cast members later recalled the tedium of sitting motionless for so long, maintaining their physical posturing for continuity bolstered only by their professional drive to provide support for Finney's tour de force. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because they, they, they weren't really, they weren't allowed to react much. I mean, I think there was a little bit of shifting and stuff, but there was a lot of just staring and like not talking. Um, Sean Connery, I think like puts his arm on, on, on that woman at one point, but like there's not a lot of movement. Um, and, and then he just goes each in turn and like outlines all the ways that he knows that they were involved. Um, and, and yeah, it was the tour de force. I, I thought that was like that, that one alone, I think makes sense for why he won for this role. Cause it was really good. Yeah. You, you mentioned in our, in our other, in our book coverage that you wanted to go on a train ride Yeah, and like how you wanted to travel by train. Um, yeah. I read that the luxurious dining coach where scenes were filmed is now in the OSE museum of Thessaloniki, Greece. The local authorities plan to refit the train to make it available for tourists use around the Balkans in the near future. Oh, so if cool. you want to go on this specific train, you could do that at some Still point. Still there? Wow, that that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, this movie definitely added to that feeling. Um, I did want to like point out that the the clearing of the snow, um, how it's like happening the, during this whole monologue, and then finally at the end, once everything's been revealed and there's sort of a, a resolution reached, is when the train is finally cleared from the track and is able to to travel again. It's like this release. Um, and I thought it was a nice, like the way those two things kind of played off of each other. And I mean, it's maybe a little obvious, but I thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. It's very cool to have that like literal parallel with, the, yeah. with like, and it's the release of what I was talking about before, of, like everything kind of getting compressed and, and, yeah. and shoved in. And then all of a sudden now it's like, ah, we can, we can continue. Something we didn't really get in the story is seeing all the characters happy after yeah. the resolution of everything we didn't get and that like, at all because as soon as the, the reveal happens at the end he's just like and with that i retire from the case or something and it's over <laughs> like like that's the end of the book whereas here we get the the, the toast exactly and, uh, the yeah. long moment where each actor gets framed up by either the detective and the, and the director of the of the rail line and like it's like their backs and heads are framing up each actor who like was a part of the 12 or whatever and they're yeah. like almost cheersing the end of the movie and, and, and it's uh it's also like mirror image to the murder murder scene itself right where each yeah. take individually has a moment to definitely react and and it was cool you know and and this movie overall i think it's good i think it holds up pretty well i think it's especially interesting to anybody who's interested in movie history which i am now um i am i am not super versed in it but you know if you are it's probably even better (laughs) yeah i yeah for for even if you just want to watch this for historical reasons i think that that's fine but it does hold up in the fact that I think that you can watch it today and enjoy yourself. But I would I would preface it by saying, like, don't go in, go in with like a like the mentality or the perspective of somebody in the 70s. Like, don't you don't have to compare it to our modern day flashy filmmaking that's exciting and keeps you involved because of the kinetic nature of it. And it's eye catching and it keeps your attention. Just sort of enjoy this for the journey that it is, I would say. And it treated as more of a slow burn film. And I think that there's definitely a lot to it. You're going to love seeing like a lot of the performances. And, yeah. and um, if you if you like those newer adaptations, like I, I think they're going to owe a lot to this one. So it's cool to go back and yeah. see, see this one. Definitely. Um, One more thing I wanted to say, Albert Finney, this is fitting in with the the comedy of the of the movie itself. Apparently, Albert Finney required many hours of makeup procedures before shooting each day. And because he was performing in a stage play, which is something that I wanted to mention is like five of these actors were also acting at night in theater and stage mm-hmm. plays while during the day shooting this. He didn't have much time for his badly needed sleep. A daily routine was developed where an ambulance arrived to pick up the sleeping actor at his house in his pajamas, carefully trying not to wake him up. 
During <laughs> during the half hour commute to the studio, the makeup artist would begin the rough work on his face. The rest of the fine detail work was completed at the studio on a still sleeping Finny. <laughs> I feel like that's got to be apocryphal, but I love it. I, I, I love couldn't that. believe that that I was like this literally I'm imagining Poirot having this done. You know what I mean? That's not even Finny at that point. Like how how could you possibly just just pick me up from my house while I'm asleep and start start putting makeup on me? I'll just sleep through it. That's so that's, that's so, so dramatic. <laughs> so dramatic. I hope that's true. Um, wow. Uh, so at the end here, it's time, man. We got to decide uh, what the better version of this was, whether it was the book or this movie. Um, we can't judge the other movies yet. We haven't seen them. We'll, we'll maybe maybe we'll revisit this question in some of those future bonus episodes. But for mm-hmm. now, we're, we're judging these two. Uh, do you want to lead off? Sure. Yeah. So I thought this was going to be easier than it ended up being. And that tends to be the case almost every time. And I I really enjoyed this adaptation. I liked the, the, the changes that were made. I liked seeing it. I liked the, like digging into this is sort of the style that we see continue on with something like Knives Out mm-hmm. that we talked about in our last episode at the end there. And like you could see so much of the cornerstones of what would make something like that. Uh, and this movie is great with the cast. Cindy Lumet is a master. I don't think this is the best movie of his that I've seen mm-hmm. by f- like not even close in my opinion. And being the first Agatha Christie novel that I read, I really, really enjoyed it. And I on and having that shock for the first time in the book maybe even has me more biased towards the book because in this case I am gonna take the book. Um okay. I really enjoyed her I just enjoyed that like I was in the hands of the absolute master of these kinds of stories and this yeah. this specific tone of these kinds of stories. Um and it was fun. It was entertaining. It was honestly very entertaining to the point that I just like devoured it and I want more and I know like her formula is something that she has throughout. But I, you know, I like that framework in some stories. Like I think it's something interesting to go back and and check out more of. Yeah, I I completely agree with you about that. Like, she is such an interesting figure, you know, like, incredible sales record, just like unparalleled. And she found this thing that works for her. And she found a way to to keep adding variety to it. Um, Reading Murder on the Oregon Express was fun. Um, You know, it was an enjoyable experience. I liked the mystery unraveling and and playing out before us. And you get the same experience here. Um, And and like you said, getting getting that mystery reveal in the book for the first time kind of biases you towards the book because you only get that reveal really once. Um, But all that being said, I think I'm going to actually give it to the movie. So I think we're going to flip a little bit here. Uh, and, And my reasoning is stories like this with these big casts, it, I find it easier to hold it all in my head when I can see it and I can put a face to the name. I, I, I really like being able to go like that's that character and and like I I instantly recognize them when they're being talked to and I can remember everything else they've done up to that moment because I'm really good at assigning stuff to faces, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And you take all of that and you put it into a really well-made movie um, that was very colorful, was very fun. Um, and it, it also like, it was this cool moment in cinema history and I could, I could feel all of that in what I was watching. Um, and so I, to me, it just edges it out. Um, and, and I'll end up giving it to the movie here, which is funny. It's like That's one awesome. of the first times I think we've flipped in this way. It's gotta be close to, yeah. It's gotta be yeah. at least one of the first times. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I did want to say like the, the cinema history that's going on here is it's massive and i'm i'm yeah. really happy to hear that you that you engage with that in that way and how it was it was a fun journey that um didn't take itself too seriously but at the same time sort of played with um expectations of some of the actors and stuff as well yeah yeah very cool fun project i'm glad we finally got to it uh speaking of projects we're going to announce our next one at the end of the episode um it was determined by a poll on our patreon because it was we do these quarterly polls um and uh yeah we have we have our results for that so stick around to the end of the episode to hear that if you like this episode please let us know in the form of a rating or review on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts we really appreciate those what are we at now luke like 80 78 79 something like that almost 80 you could be the 80th (laughs) (laughs) we're looking to get to 100 so please leave a a rating it really does help out the show and you know we will be entirely in your debt and grateful for that so please do that (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that would be great. Uh, also, subscribe to our channel on uh, YouTube. We are getting close to 400 subscribers on there, and we just uploaded one of our first like actual video things on there. We did a uh, uh, James and I ranking adaptations by tier, a tier ranking video, um, and we we put that out. And actually, edited it together, so it's uh, it's got little clips of the movies and stuff that we're talking about. You know, it's my first time editing a video like that, so it would be cool if you check that out. And while you're there, subscribe, maybe give it a like. That would be cool. Yeah, and honestly, look out for more video content because we know we have at least a little bit more on the way. So yeah, keep that in mind. Yeah, we're probably going to do uh, that for our, another season too. So if you like that tier video, we'll probably do it again. Be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And thank you to Dylan Owen for the use of our intro and outro music, uh, the track Black Fingerprint. Okay, so we are going to announce our next project. Again, this was from Patreon. If you wanted mm-hmm. to go support us on Patreon as well, as patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And the new project is The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, I tried to say it at the same time as you, but then I was like, this is not going to work. The Haunting of Hill House. (laughs) The Haunting of Hill House, um, which is by Shirley Jackson, who is a legend in the horror writing community. And and I'm so excited to finally read one of her novels. It's been one of those that, like, I know I have wanted to and needed to read. Um, And I'm very excited to, like, learn about her, to talk about her biography in the way that we do. So that'll be very fun. And then there's this Netflix season of television that I've had so many people recommend to me (laughs) and I never watched because it came out once we had started the podcast and I kept going, no, 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 I'm going to watch that for the podcast. I'm going to watch that for the podcast. I'm so excited to actually get to do it and catch up to the zeitgeist, right? Seriously. Uh, It's cool that we're also going from one author who is a woman legend yeah to another you know so yeah. like to, to for different that. reasons for very different reasons we'll, we'll get into it's very cool um yeah it actually did come down to a tie we should say with the handmaid's tale margaret atwood um and we ended up flipping a coin which i, I posted on social media about and it, this was the result of a coin flip we are planning to cover the handmaid's tale later this year at some point we really hope to get it in there and if we don't get it in somehow by the end of the year we'll be sure to get it in as soon as possible um but yeah look for that um because we want to we want to honor that as well it got it got just as many votes as this one so uh yeah we hope you join us next week when we get into something a little more spooky uh but this was a lot of fun and until next time thanks for listening Thank you.